Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca O'Keefe, our Head of Investment, and Maura O'Neill, our Head of Personal Finance. Today we're going to be looking at a couple of things of particular interest to investors, namely the difference between percentage as opposed to flat rate fees, uh, but also investing for children. So starting with Rebecca on the question of uh, percentage versus flat rate, what are the key differences between them? So flat fees are what they suggest, a fixed amount that you pay monthly, quarterly or yearly to your platform or provider to manage your account. The benefits are that you know exactly how much you are paying each year in pounds and pence and that you have full control of your charges. The downside is that if you're a starter investor or you have a smaller value portfolio, this may be a more costly option, at least initially until the value of your investments grow. Percentage fees typically charge you a proportion of your total portfolio based on the value of your investments. It may be limited to funds rather than shares in your account, but some providers who charge percentage-based fees charge it on the value of the total portfolio. The benefits are that for starter investors with less money, the amount you pay is likely to be limited. The downside here is that as your investments grow, the amount you pay in charges grows too. In addition, you may not know exactly how much you're paying until you get your annual statement. So is it just account fees that have this quandary for investors? Well, interestingly, you could argue that the rise of passive funds has been borne in large part by the reduced fees that they charge compared to active managers. The whole issue of active versus passive investment would take a whole new podcast to cover, and I'm not suggesting that there aren't great active managers out there. But put simply, many investors believe in paying as little for their investments as possible, so prefer passive funds, which typically charge a fraction of the cost of active managers. I guess you then have a further question which you could ask, which is, why would I choose to invest in a passive fund which may cost me, for example, 0.1% and then treble or quadruple my costs on top by adding on a percentage fee? So is your account size the only thing to consider? The value of your account is the most likely to be the main consideration, but there are a number of other factors that you should take into effect. Whether you invest in funds, investment trusts, ETFs, in directly held shares, for example, how often you trade, and whether you're a buy and hold style investor or whether you're more actively engaged with your investments, or for example, whether you invest regularly and reinvest dividends, all of the sort of costs associated with your account are something that you should take into effect when looking at what sort of investor you are and whether or not you should choose to be with a percentage-based provider or a flat fee. Well, that all sounds very reasonable. Um, Does it really make a big difference? Unless your portfolio value is into six figures, you may think that it actually makes little or no difference to you, but you'd be surprised how much difference compounding extra fees can make to your final portfolio. The Sunday Times did a piece recently looking at costs that you would pay over 20 20 years on a million pound starter portfolio, which fair enough is beyond the bounds of most of us, but it did result in some staggering fees. Some providers, they worked out, the fees would reach over £990,000 if you'd received a 6% return on your money. So you are giving up an awful lot to those providers. That's an awful lot to pay in charges over 20 years. But let's come back to the real world with more realistic numbers. We had independent experts, the Langcat, look at what difference flat fees made compared to percentage-based fees over 30 years. And 30 years may again seem too long, but bearing in mind that we're investing up to and including 
all the way through our pensions, in, on average, it's a reasonable number to go for. They started with the average ISA portfolio value, according to HMRC, just over £51,000. And they use the average ISA subscription of just over £10,000 per annum. You can invest up to 20000 but the average amount, according to HMRC, that most investors put into their ISA every year is £10,000. And they also use the average number of trades across the industry, which happens to be seven. Paying our flat fee would save you over £30,000 compared to a provider which charged 0.45% per annum. So I think that's more than enough to make you think. However, it is important to note that if your portfolio is smaller, then percentage-based fees are likely to be best to start with. Any final thoughts, Rebecca? Charges are an absolutely vital consideration for investors when choosing which provider to opt for. In general, if you have a small investment pot or are just starting out, then paying a percentage fee is best and flat fees could be more costly. But if you have a higher value account, or even if you're thinking about, for example, consolidating your pensions into one place to give you better control so that you end up with a bigger portfolio, you may want to consider a provider who offers you a flat fee. Even small reductions in fees can add up to a huge amounts over time because of compounding. Because as your investments grow, percentage-based fees take a larger and larger absolute amount out of the value of your investments. Starter investors can be very diligent when looking at what investment account they open initially. But if you happen to be one of those investors who opened an account a reasonable time ago, a long time ago even, you may be happy with your provider, you may be really happy with their service, you may overlook the costs or feel that they're reasonable over one year. However, if you were to do the maths and work out how much those annual charges are likely to eat into your pension or ISA over the long term, you may be slightly less enamoured. Most established investors spend 99% of their time trying to find the best investment, and that's great. But I would strongly suggest spending one hour looking at how much you're paying. If you do discover that you could be paying a lot less elsewhere, then think about transferring. It should be a lot less scary than it appears, and it may save you tens of thousands of pounds over the long term. Thank you, Rebecca. Points well made and very much food for thought. Moira, investing for children. Why would you invest for your children? Well, there's all sorts of reasons. We all know young people are under lots of financial pressure. Um, there are lots of pressures around um, higher education, lots of student debt that parents are worried that they don't want their kids to get into. And then when you're starting out in your adult life, there are big ticket items such as saving for your first property, maybe a wedding, buying your first car, and lots of parents and grandparents want to help their children um, with these. Now, I would say that you have to look after yourself first, as if you're a parent or a grandparent. Um, you must make sure that you're putting enough away for retirement. I know mothers in particular tend to prioritise the kids and think I must make sure they're going to be okay in later life. but. I'm sure your children or your grandchildren don't want to see you struggling, so make sure that you're um, doing enough for yourself first. Then if you have the surplus, then by all means, um, think carefully about what you can do for your kids, and I'm sure they'll be very grateful in future years. Um, but I would say, if you can control the money, um, it's probably, and you haven't used your own allowances, because we all have £20,000 we can put away in ISAs each year, for example, 
it's possibly best to allocate just a bit of that for your kids so it's within your own allowances and you don't have to worry um, about them automatically getting the money at a time when they may not spend it wisely, for example. But some parents love the idea of using the contributing to the junior ISA, which is probably the best known way of um, investing for children. Um, children have their own ISA allowance, and um, I'm afraid they uh, well they automatically get um, access to the money at age. 18. Now, not every parent or grandparent likes the idea of that. At 18, we sometimes might be inclined to blow it all on a party or trip of a lifetime. We might not spend it wisely. Um, but lots of people do trust their kids and think that their kids will very much um, use it wisely, spend it on university, spend it uh, or even carry on saving and investing for the future. So it really is a personal decision. So you're obviously talking from experience. What are some of the issues you've encountered? Well, my children are fairly young. They're aged nine and 13. Um, they have junior ISAs. Um, they were originally child trust funds, but they've converted into junior ISAs along the way. Um, I don't contribute to those myself, but my father liked the idea of leaving a legacy and he decided he wanted to give them a little uh, contribution so that when they get to university age, well, hopefully if they choose to go to university, then they'll have uh, a fund to fall back on. And I've been very keen to tell my kids all along the way that Grandad is doing this so that you get a good education. So it's drilled into them that that money is not going to be there at age 18 to blow on a, on a fancy party or whatever, even a fancy car. I goodness knows what they could spend it on. Um, but I've also been very keen to get them interested in what is there in the fund. Um, so we've talked around issues such as climate change because um, my nine-year-old is very keen on um, things like saving the rainforest. She wanted to do a bake sale. There's been lots of talk at school around climate. And of course, um, for the older one, she's um, seen uh, lots of her friends going off on the climate change school strike marches, which have been inspired by the Swedish schoolgirl uh, Greta Thunberg. Um, so yes, it's been um, that, you know, they can, we can invest there funds um, ethically, uh, sustainably, um, and the younger one's very interested in that. The older one, not so much. She's um, more um, interested in things like, can I buy a bit of Amazon? Can I buy, um, um, can I buy a bit of my phone? Because the phone is very important to her. And I think that's a really nice way of talking around. You can have exposure to these companies that you use in your day-to-day -day life. And that's a way to get them interested in investing. Sort of modern day scuttlebutt. Yes, definitely. But that sort of experience, yeah. Yeah. So that's a motivation. Generally speaking, is there enough, enough financial education being done within the school framework at the moment, do you think? No, neither of them have had any um, education about um, investment. Interactive Investor does sponsor the Personal Finance Teacher of the Year Awards. We've um, seen the entries flood in. They've been very impressive, but very few of the, um, the amazing personal finance teachers out there are tackling long-term saving and investing. They do a lot of amazing work on teaching kids not to get into debt, how to manage credit cards, how to read a paycheck, 
all of the essential things that they'll encounter um, probably first. But um, the importance of investing is is difficult one to get across to school kids. Although we did see a couple of teachers who were doing amazing things. One was um, had got his um, kids to do a video about how to become a billionaire, how to invest, and they'd obviously had fun. And he says he's had debates in class about companies that kids are interested in. Tesla was one. He says that the, there were 16 year olds and they were very um, animated in that debate. And um, I mean, other, another teacher had taught her children about the about inflation and how that affects our money over the long term. And I think all of these are very crucial things that uh, people aren't necessarily going to learn from the people in their families because we know that as a as a country we have quite low levels of financial literacy, and not every parent is going to teach their their kids about this. I'm doing it because it's my job and I know this stuff, but not everyone else will. And I think coming from the school, giving kids the opportunity to learn is a fantastic um, initiative and we need to see more of that around the country. Yeah, particularly when arguably there's a a shorter concentration span and in any event they've got other demands on on their time, not least of which is that schoolwork, which is why it's a bit of a shame it's not uh, more in, in the curriculum but but obviously when when you can take the longer term investment view if, if you're starting from zero rather than the age of 18 there's another 18 years you could add in in terms of potential um, extra returns compound interest uh, and all the rest of it have you got any any final thoughts just to bring that together on why you should really think about investing for your children well i think you know that they've got such a long time ahead of them and so even very small amounts invested um when children are young can grow to be amazing sums um, um, we do see a lot of um, grandparents like to think of the longest lasting legacy they can give and that's of course to contribute to a pension on behalf of a child and even small amounts there could really set them up for an amazing retirement life it's a long time in the future but um, the tax relief and the compounding of the investments can really pay off Moira, thanks very much indeed, and thank you too, Rebecca, Uh, and thank you for listening. Do join us next time for another Interactive Investor podcast.